The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Now, if you looked at your worship bulletin this morning, it says that you should prepare for a sermon entitled Building on the Right Foundation or something like that. That is not the sermon you'll hear this morning, so if you're prepared for that, then you're early for next week. That's because that's the title I gave to be printed, but since doing that, I, uh, I chose to, to do something else. There, there's a, a piece or two that I, I've missed in this section in Luke chapter 6 that we've been looking at that um, uh, I was planning to just sort of move beyond it and come back to the themes a little bit later, but after, after worship last week, I had several conversations with folks who were sort of reflecting on, on the message presented and on the issue of forgiveness and, and some questions that were being asked, uh, that, that got asked a couple of times. And so one of the things that I realized, if somebody asks me a question about content of a sermon and I hear that question one or two times, then that means that probably there's a handful of other people that are wondering the same thing but just haven't come to ask. And so I want to go back and, and, and uh, answer a couple of those questions sort of as an addendum to last week's message on forgiveness. And then I want to cover the one piece of our text that we did not look at in uh, verses 36 through 49. So, and then we'll move on from this to, uh, to, our, to our next thing beginning next week. So let's, uh, let's look at uh, Luke chapter 6. And we'll just catch the breadth of the whole, of the whole text uh, beginning in verse 37. This is Jesus preaching to a multitude, and he said these words. He said, judge not, and you'll not be judged. Condemn not, and you'll not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told him a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, uh, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you not see the speck, or excuse me, why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck that's in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that's in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that's in your brother's eye. We'll stop there. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. Lord, you are a gracious and forgiving God. We pray that you would help us to reflect that in our lives and in our attitudes and the way we navigate with one another. And Lord, as we reflect this morning on the fact that you also are a God who gives and you've called us to, to not only mirror forgiveness and to not only mirror love for our enemy, not only to, to be people who are, are not judgmental, but you've called us to be people whose lives are marked by generosity in the way we give. Lord, we pray that this morning your word would come alive to us and that you would help us to examine ourselves in light of it, that we might leave this place walking in obedience to it and in submission to it. 
So we pray that that would be, by the power of your Spirit, the result in our lives today as we study your word, for it is the truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been looking at this, this sermon that Jesus preached, this, this very famous sermon where he's laid out for us the values of, of his kingdom. And he's been showing us in these weeks that we've been looking at this how his people are to be distinct from the world. The values of his people are not to mirror the values of the world. They're to ma- mirror a whole different set of values. And they are, in fact, as we've seen very, very clearly in these weeks, 180 degrees opposite the values of the world around us, the values that we hear and that we're taught really from birth on up. And we've seen him say things or heard him say things that are really incredible, that, that are hard for us to obey, that don't come natural to us, that only happen to us by the power of his spirit alive and at work within us, transforming us into his image. He says things like, love your enemies. Do kind things for those who do evil toward you. It's hard. He says for us that we're to be people who are, are to be generous with forgiveness. We're to be people who forgive. We're to forgive like, like Christ has forgiven us. And he forgives us instantly. And he forgives us completely. And he forgives us regardless of what our offense was. And we're to forgive other people like that. Even people who wound us deeply, who hurt us. This is not what we're taught in the world. These are, these are values that, that the world around us does not value. They're, in fact, the opposite. He tells us that, that we're to be merciful like, like he's merciful, and that's reflected in not being people who are, who are judgmental, who, who walk around with sort of a censorious attitude that's just looking to, to be a, a, a critiquer of other people, who's just looking for minor things that are going on in somebody else's life and take some, some sick sort of pleasure in pointing those things out while ignoring our own, our own grievous kinds of sins. We're not to be the people who kind of make swift judgments about people. We don't know the whole story. That we're to, to be people who, who uh, don't assume the worst about people. We're to be people who don't judge motives that we don't understand. We're, people, we're to be people who, who build others up and are quick to forgive and And all of these things, it's what mercy looks like. It looks like not being judgmental. It looks like loving our enemies and doing good to them. It looks like, mercy looks like forgiving. And we walked through that piece really last week. And we sort of concluded last week with with what what, uh, Ken Sandy calls four promises of forgiveness. I can't recall if I left that slide in there or not, Tina, the four promises of forgiveness, but here's what they are if I didn't leave it in there. There, I will not continue to think about this incident. They are, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I'll not continue to talk to others about this incident. I'll not allow this incident to stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. That, that, we've decided last week that's what forgiveness looks like. It's making those promises. When I say I forgive you, I'm saying those things. I'm not going to keep bringing this up. I'm not going to keep thinking about this and dwelling on it. I'm not going to go around and continue to talk to other people about what you've done to me. And I'm not going to allow it to stand between our, our relationship between you and me. These are the promises. If I haven't made those promises, then I'm not forgiving someone truly. I'm just giving lip service to forgiveness, but not in actuality, truly transactionally forgiving somebody. And we need to guard ourselves against sort of the lip service forgiveness and make those promises when we say, I forgive you. 
But what is the danger of walking around in unforgiveness? So what, what's the big deal? I mean, besides the fact that Christ has commanded us to be merciful like he's merciful, and a part of that is forgiving like he forgives, what is the danger if we don't do that? I mean, what, 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 what is the risk that we take by walking around and harboring unforgiveness in our heart? Let me give you just a few things on that, on that topic. When we walk around in unforgiveness and we refuse to obey the Lord in this area and reflect his character, one of the things that happens is when we harbor unforgiveness, that unforgiveness fuels a cycle of anger inside of us. It fuels a cycle of anger. Anger doesn't sit stagnant inside of your heart or my heart. Anger builds. And, and the longer it, 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 it marinates in our heart, that anger quickly rolls into bitterness. And that bitterness quickly rolls into resentment. And that resentment quickly turns into grudges. And if we're not careful, those grudges lead us right down a road toward hatred. That's what unforgiveness leads us to. It doesn't sit still in our heart, in our life. It, it, it fuels the cycle of anger, where our anger continues to build. And the more we think about whatever it is that's happened that's offended us, the more we mull it over, the more we replay the video in our minds, the more we continue to relive it, the more it just fuels anger. And that anger builds and turns into bitterness, resentment, grudges, hatred, all of these nasty fruits that come out of that. And if we're not careful, we end up being bitter, resentful people whose whole attitude and heart is corrupted by an unforgiving spirit. It develops in a sort of a, a sarcastic, condemning, nasty disposition. But forgiveness breaks that cycle. When we forgive and we let go of that offense, and we make those four promises, it breaks that cycle of anger. The offense no longer is something that we're reliving every day. It's now just a moment in time that's in the past. It's released, and it's, and it's left in the hands of God. The rehashing of it stops. The retelling of it stops. The, the soul is now freed from the, the bondage of that anger and the cycle that has been playing out and driving towards all of these other nasty things. And it, it opens the door in our heart to the fruit of the Spirit, to things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Why in the world would you and I want to live in that cycle of anger and bitterness and resentment that comes with an unforgiving heart? But it's not just that it does that. It also locks the past into the present. When, we, when we, for, we refuse to forgive, it takes the past and it locks it into the present. It doesn't allow the past to be in the past. As long as we fail to forgive people, we're, we're shackled by our past. It, unforgiveness, it, 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 keeps, it keeps the pain alive. It keeps the sore open. It never lets the wound heal. It allows the past to keep corrupting the present. And we go through ourselves reminding ourselves of what's been done to us, stirring up the pain that happened in the past, but reliving it in the present. And so the past is now locked into the present, and it's ever with us, and it never goes away. But when we forgive, when we make those promises, we, we open the door, and we let the past out of the present, and we let it go to where it belongs in the past, no longer dogging us in the present. Once we forgive, it's over. And we're freed. But when you and I insist on remembering the offense and never forgiving, we allow the person to keep on offending us over and over and over again in the present. And so the past rules the present. 
Forgiveness allows the past to go in the past where it belongs. To let it go. But if we refuse to forgive, it stays with us. The other thing it does is it interferes with our relationship with the Lord. And this should matter to you if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian, this should really, really matter to you. That when you and I embrace an unforgiving heart and an unforgiving spirit, it messes up our relationship with God. Your relationship with the Lord can't be right and good and proper and holy when you're, when you're embracing unforgiveness in your heart and refusing to forgive somebody. We saw this in verse 37 of Luke 6. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Jesus is saying, if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father is also going to forgive you when you sin against him. You don't forgive others their sins against you. And guess what? God doesn't forgive you your sins against him. You say, well, what does that mean? Does that, does that mean I'm going to go to hell? Does that mean I'm going to lose my salvation somehow if I refuse to forgive somebody? No, that's not what's at stake here. That's not at all what he's talking about. If you remember our, our definition of forgiveness that we saw last week, and if you weren't here, we'll give it to you. This is what forgiveness is. It simply means to release from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. When I forgive somebody, that's what I do. I release them from the liability to suffer punishment or to suffer some sort of penalty for their, their offense or for their sin. That's what we do. And so God, when he forgives us, that's what he does. There's an eternal piece to forgiveness, but there's also a temporal piece to that. That when, when God forgives us, in some sense, he releases us from the, 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 immediate, the immediate sort of penalty for some of that sin. And what he's saying here is when we refuse to release other people from the temporal punishment and penalty for their offenses against us, then God will quite often withhold that same thing from us. And he'll exact a penalty and a punishment that otherwise would have been released. Think about that. That's serious. That is very, very serious. Why would you and I want to sentence ourselves to anything else but the maximum blessing of God? Why would we want to put ourselves in a position where, where God is, is saying, hey, listen, you, you're, you're harboring unforgiving heart, and you are holding people, continuing to hold people accountable for their offenses against you, against, against you and therefore I'm going to continue to hold your pen, the penalty of some of your offenses against you. Deal with you the way you're dealing with others. What a foolish, foolish, foolish thing to do. I mean, what in the world is the value of having God angry with me? There is no value in that. And when I embrace unforgiveness, that's what I do. That's what I do. I leverage that against my own self, cutting off the joy of my fellowship with the Lord. And finally, sort of it gives Satan an opportunity in our lives. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 and 27 tells us this. Paul writes, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. I mean, very clear, very clear text, right? When you and I choose to go to bed angry and harboring unforgiveness, we just swing the door wide open, put the welcome mat on the front steps for Satan and demons. We're just saying, come on in, come on in. My, my life is open to you. We give him an opportunity to infect our soul, to get in our head, to wreak havoc in multiple areas of our life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul speaks to the same issue. He says to the Corinthian church, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that 
we would not be outwitted by Satan. But we're not ignorant of his designs. Paul understands that, that Satan has designs on your life, that he has schemes, that he has, that he has, that he has plans, that he has ploys, that he has, he has methods by which he, he has opportunity or he gains opportunity or he gains, as some translations say, a foothold into your life. And one of the primary ways he does that is through the open door of unforgiveness. And I wonder how much of our temptation and how much of our battle with sin on a day-to-day basis, how much of our trouble, how much of our grief, how much of our struggle that we deal with daily is related to an unforgiving heart that we've embraced, allowing Satan an opportunity in our life to dog us. And so there's a lot at stake, right? There's a lot at stake in this issue of forgiveness. There's a lot, of, a, a lot that's on the line when you and I refuse to obey the Lord in this, in this area. It, it's, it, it's, it's not just about being merciful, it's at least that, but all these other nasty consequences come to our life when we resist forgiving. There's nothing good that comes from harboring unforgiveness. Now, last week, as we, as we sort of finished up our time on, on forgiveness, I had a couple of questions. And one of the questions that came to me was, when is the right time to forgive? And some folks were sort of processing this idea, when, when do I forgive? When is, when is forgiveness my responsibility? And how does that relate to the other person's repentance? In other words, okay, I get it that I should forgive, but... But how does this work with me and God, right? Like, like I confess my sin to the Lord, and he, 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 you know, and I repent, and then he forgives. So isn't that the way that I should navigate with people, that, that I should hang, hang tight until they then confess their sin and repent, and that then triggers my responsibility to forgive? Is that correct? No, that's not correct. I don't believe that's correct. I don't believe that is biblical. I think that's a, a loophole that we try to create. Now, ideally, ideally it works that way. Ideally, uh, forgiveness is a, a two-part transactional thing that happens pretty quick, whereas the person who's done the offense comes and confesses that sin and, and expresses a, a repentant heart, and therefore the person on the other end of that then forgives freely and wholly and fully and makes those four promises of forgiveness. But what do we do when a person doesn't confess their sin? What do we do when a person doesn't have a repentant heart toward what they've done to hurt us and to wound us and to do evil to us? What do we do? Are we exempt then from forgiveness? Well, the answer to that question is no. It's no. In fact, you and I have a responsibility to, a, to, to take up a positional forgiveness from the very beginning as soon as possible. We can take steps toward repentance almost immediately. I mean, not toward repentance, toward forgiveness almost immediately. We can open our heart to forgiveness regardless of what the other person does. In fact, we get this from the idea that this is exactly, in fact, how Christ has forgiven us. Do you remember what we read last week and even uh, Trey mentioned in his prayer? How did Christ forgive us? Do you remember while we were yet, what, sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ gave his life for us. He, he took all the steps toward forgiveness while we were still what? We were unrepentant, unconfessed sinners. He died for us. When we see the Lord Jesus on the cross, what do we hear him saying about people who are literally crucifying him at the moment? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. 
Was the full transaction of forgiveness taking place at that moment? No, it wasn't because they were, they were in the midst of their sin and they weren't confessional and they were not repenting. But Christ, from his perspective, was, a, was opening the door to forgiveness right there in the moment even, in the moment of the action. Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul writes this. He says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. I think that's an important piece for us. So far as it depends upon you, right, live peaceably with all. Now, does the whole, does the whole transaction of forgiveness, does that all depend on you? No, it does not, because there two people are involved in an offense, and, and the, the full transaction requires two people. But there is a part that's your responsibility. And so far as it is, is, it, is, it, is up to you, so far as it's up to me, my job is to live peaceably with everybody. My job and my responsibility before the Lord is while they're still sinning against me, it's to open that door of forgiveness and to put my, myself in a position where I'm open and ready and willing to forgive. I can make that first promise of forgiveness before they ever confess their sin, before they ever repent of their sin. I can say, I'm gonna promise, I can say this to the Lord, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna continue to think about this. I'm not gonna continue to relive this. I'm gonna release that right now. And when that person comes around, confess their sin and repent, I can, I can make those other promises that are part of forgiveness. And this is what Christ modeled for us. It's what modeled for At the cross, he took up a position of forgiveness. But when we repent and trust in him, he completes the transaction. I think that's how we're to deal with other people. So be careful giving yourself a loophole on forgiveness and making it the responsibility of the offending party. A lot of those nasty fruits of unforgiveness begin to take root in your heart when you do that. The other question is, how often do I forgive? What about when somebody wounds me multiple times? At what point is enough enough? Again, the scriptures answer this very clearly. Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, Say the last two words with me. Forgive him. I say the last two words with me. Forgive him. Seven times is a random number that just simply means an unlimited amount of times. That there is no limit to forgiveness. Again, there is no limit to God's forgiveness toward us. There ought not be limits to our forgiveness toward other people. Now, within this text, there is an assumption that that there's a genuine sort of repentance that's a part of this equation. So it's not the idea that somebody walks up to you, punches you in the face, Psh, oh, sorry, forgive me. Psh, sorry, forgive me. Psh, sorry, forgive me. Okay. At some point, when somebody does that multiple times, the genuineness of their request for forgiveness is called into question, right? And we remove our face from their fist. That's just wisdom. That's just common sense and wisdom. The issue here is not that we're to be doormats that just take constant abuse. That's not the issue here at all. The issue is that, that our forgiveness is to model Christ's forgiveness for us, and it's not to have a limit. So when somebody wounds us and they offend us, even if they offend us multiple times in multiple ways, we never have the right to say to them, hey, I'm going to forgive you, but don't ever let that happen again. With the insinuation that I won't forgive you the next time. Right? There's always that open door of forgiveness that says, you know what, I'm going to forgive you. 
And if they come back again the next week, then we open the door to forgiveness again and there's no exhausting that because Christ doesn't exhaust it with us. And the final question here is then this. Does forgiveness require reconciliation? Is it possible for me to say, okay, I'm going to forgive you, but I don't want anything to do with you anymore? And the answer to that question is no. Daryl Box says this. He says, love for one's enemy does not fix a view of him in stone. That's an important comment that he makes there. That when I love somebody, I don't fix a view of them in stone. That is to say, when they offend me, I don't lock into my heart and my mind a view of them that can't be moved to where I can't be reconciled. And we do that sometimes. No, reconciliation is required. And here's what reconciliation means, according to Ken Sandy. He says this, reconciliation is simply this, to replace hostility and separation with peace and friendship. To replace hostility and separation with peace and and friendship. It does, not have to, it does not mean that we have to be best friends with the person who has offended us. It does mean, according to Ken Sandy, that the relationship is at least as good as it was before the offense. That's what reconciliation looks like. That we are restored to where we were before the offense took place. And to do that requires deliberate effort. Deliberate effort on the part of the forgiver and on the other party as well just simply means I'm not going to linger on this, keep thinking about it, and letting it stand between us. I'm going to let it go and reestablish a relationship with you. When, when I talk to you, I'm going to speak positively uh, about you to you. When I talk to other people about you, I'm going to speak positively about you. And in my actions toward you, there are going to be actions of friendship and restoration and love, not friendship, not, not a hostility and barrier. That's what reconciliation looks like. And we're called to reconciliation great quote by C.S. Lewis on this talking about actions he says this don't waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor act as if you did as soon as we do this we find one of the great secrets when you're behaving as if you love someone you will presently come to love him an interesting thought from Lewis that and we, we begin to to take up a position of love in our behavior that it has an effect on our heart and our attitude as well we begin to act on that so forgiveness matters, and reconciliation matters, and there's an awful lot at stake when you and I refuse to forgive. And so we, re we forgive, we forgive wholly, we forgive fully, we open the door to forgiveness in immediately as soon as possible so that we don't allow any of those negative effects to begin to infect our life, and we strive toward that full reconciliation because Christ has reconciled us to himself. All right. So forgiveness is an important thing. Mercy looks like forgiving. When in Christ, when, when, when he's, Jesus says, be merciful like I'm merciful, that's wrapped up in this. It's being a forgiving person like he's forgiving. He gives us one last thing on this issue of what mercy looks like. And he says mercy looks like giving. It looks like giving. Not just forgiving, but giving. In verse 38, give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. Now, earlier in the text, he's already mentioned giving on two occasions. Back up in verse 30, he says, give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, don't demand them back. And then in verse 35, he says, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And we read these, these words and we think, okay, Lord, as if forgiving wasn't hard, 
and, and loving my enemy wasn't hard. Now you're saying I need to take a step beyond just forgiving and actively give generously. To be a generous giver. And again, 180 degrees opposite from what the world around us teaches us. The world around us says nothing like this. The world around us says amass and accumulate as much wealth as you can for yourself. That's the goal. See how much you can pile up. See how much you can put in your retirement account. See how much you can put in your investments. Strive always for more. Lend only to people who are going to pay you back with interest. The world says if someone doesn't pay you back, never ever do what? Lend to them again. Or you're a fool. The world says amass as much as you can. Adjust your spending to match your income. That means amass as much as you can, and the more you get, the more you have opportunity then to spend, and therefore you can get more to be able to spend more. And if in doing all that, somebody rips you off, immediately take them to court. Bring them before a judge and get what's yours back. That's what we're taught from birth to death in our culture. And the people who do it best are celebrated by the world around us. I looked up this, this week, the richest people in the world right now. Do you know who they are? Number one, if you've bought anything from Amazon, you've, you've contributed to his wealth. Jeff Bezos, if that's how you say his name, is 57 years old. It's worth $177 billion, with a B. Right on his heels is a man called Elon Musk. If you drive a Tesla, then you've contributed to his $151 billion net worth. And, and uh, behind them in the top 10 are names like Zuckerberg, Gates, Buffett. These are people who understand these values of the world, and they've mastered them, right? Mastered them to the tune of billions of dollars, and they're celebrated and venerated and worshipped by the world around us as people we should look up to. But Jesus says those are not the people you should look up to. Those are not the values you should attain. If you're part of my kingdom and you're, you're one of my people, then what's going to mark your life is not billions of dollars in an account or in your net worth, but what's going to mark value in my kingdom is how generous of a giver are you. How quick are you to, to give what you have to other people? Jesus says, don't amass for yourself. Give freely to others. Anyone who begs from you, give to them. Somebody who takes your step, don't demand it back. Let other people borrow your stuff. Even if they don't return your shovel, let them borrow your, your drill next week. Right? In fact, don't even expect them to return it, he says. Just give it to them. If they bring it back, that's a bonus. Does that come natural to you? Does any of that come natural to you? Or does that take effort? And does that take the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to even get close to that? I know it does to me. That is, it doesn't come natural. It takes the Holy Spirit. So how do I get from being a selfish hoarder to being a godly giver that models the value of his kingdom? How do I get from here to there? It begins with a change of mindset and some convictions that, that we have to embrace with our minds, that we have to settle in our hearts, and we have to start acting upon. And I'll give these to you sort of in quick fashion in our last 10 minutes here this morning. Conviction number one that we have to get in our minds, that we have to settle in our hearts, and we have to start acting on is simply this. I can never 
outgive God. That is a very clear conviction that we have to settle. I cannot, it is impossible for me to outgive God. We see that in verse 38, where he says, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, put in your lap. When you and I act as generous givers, God becomes a generous giver towards us. That's the, that's the point of, of that verse. That when you and I are generous in our giving, that we trigger generosity on God's part. And, and, and our generosity will never out-generous him. That's not a verb, actually, but you get the point. This idea of good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. If you're not a farmer and you don't deal with grain, then it, does, it probably makes sense that you don't get that. But it's a person receiving grain. And normally if you were buying grain from, a, from somebody who sells grain, you would bring your own vessel with you to, to, to put all the grain in to carry home. But the picture here is a person who doesn't have a vessel with them. It's someone who's receiving an unexpected gift of grain. This person is unprepared. They're, they're receiving a surprise blessing. And so what do they do? Well, they have an outer tunic on them, and they, they, they pull that up, sort of, if you can imagine. Maybe it's easier for the ladies to imagine because you wear dresses, but <clears throat> there's an outer sort of a dress that wouldn't uh, 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 sort of compromise your modesty. <clears throat> pull that thing up, and it makes a, a pouch, right? And the person with the grain just starts pouring the grain into that pouch that you've made there into your lap and that's the picture here of somebody who, who doesn't have a vessel they've come and they're, they're receiving a surprise an unexpected gift of grain and they're unprepared and so they pull up that outer garment and so that's what's going on and the, also pictured here is the generosity of the person doling out the grain they don't, just, they don't just fill up the pouch right? they don't just pour grain in it until it looks full, they do what? they, they press it down and they, they shake it, why would you shake a pile of grain? so that it settles down and you can then do what? pour some more in, right? And so this is a, a, a giver of grain who's giving away grain, and they're not just giving a little bit. They're not even just filling up the pouch. They're shaking it, and they're pressing it down, and they're putting more in and shaking it and pressing it down to make sure that they can give every, fill up every little piece of that pouch with grain. And they don't even stop there. After they do that, they pile it up to where it's doing what? They're just running over into the person's lap. It's a picture of, of, of one who's, who's extravagantly generous with their grain. And the imagery here is God is the one who's doling out the grain. And that person who's receiving it is a generous believer who gives. And the picture is you never outgive God. You become a generous giver and you give and you live out this, this value of giving in his world and in his kingdom. And you give like he's defined giving here and you never outgive God. He's going to fill up your life with surprise blessings and not just modest blessings, but he'll fill up your life with overflowing blessings. And you can never outpace him when it comes to this matter of giving. And so the message is I can't outgive him. When I give generously to others, he'll surprise me with generous provisions for my own life. I don't want to spend time on it this morning, but I'm just going to lay it out there as a caution. This is not a get-rich formula where we put God to the test. So if you turn on the uh, whatever Christian channel there is on cable and you hear whatever preacher with weird hair preaching on that channel and yelling at you and telling you that if you give him $1,000, God's going to put 10000 in your, in, your, in your mailbox the next week, and he points to this verse, then you turn him off, and you don't ever listen to him again, because what he's actually advancing to you is not generous giving that's born out of love for other people, but what he's actually doing is he's teaching you to put God to the test for your own selfish purposes. He's teaching you to give out of selfishness, 
because you want to manipulate God into giving you more, and that's sinful, and that's wrong, and it never works. It makes the guy with bad hair rich, and it makes you poor. And he buys a jet, and you are out your $1,000. Don't, don't fall into that nonsense. What, we're here, what we have here is a, a general principle. A general principle of generous, selfless giving. Test it. See. You test it out in your life. You give like the Lord calls this merciful giving here. Like he, like he tells us here. Give to people who beg from you. Don't expect things back. Give generously. Lend expecting nothing in return. Do these things. And you just watch and see. Watch and see if God doesn't fill your life with all sorts of surprise blessings. Just watch and see if you ever go without what you need. Watch and see if you don't have abundantly more than what you need. Because that's how he operates. You can't outgive him. The second thing is this, a second conviction that you have to have. You have to have this second conviction. We've got to get this in our brains, settle it in our hearts, and begin to act on it. And that's this, God's called me to be a manager of wealth, not an owner. He's called me to be a manager of wealth, not an owner. Very, very simple principle. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Why don't you just read this one with me? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it. That's a fairly comprehensive statement, isn't it? What on this earth does not belong to the Lord? Nothing, right? Nothing. Are you on this earth? You say most days I am, in body and mind. Sometimes I'm in outer space, but mostly I'm here, right? What about your home and your car and your, your, your things that you have? Are they on the earth? They're on the earth too, aren't they? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. What's, what's, what's not encompassed in the word everything in it? Well, there's nothing, right? Everything means everything. That includes everything. So there's nothing that I have that really doesn't belong to the Lord. Everything on the earth belongs to the Lord. It's all his. He made it. All who live on it. He owns my life. He owns my things. He owns my stuff. He's given me things. He's graciously generously giving me, giving me things that I, that, I, that I have and I use every day and that I enjoy. But what happens is you and I are, are tempted in our minds to begin to think that we're the owners of all the things that we have, that they're ours, that they're mine. And so when you and I take up the position that all the things that we have are ours and we own them and they're ours, then all of a sudden our lives get filled with all this anxiety and fear because we have this pressure that we have to keep what's ours. And so we get stressed out over our money and we get stressed out over our possessions and we worry about the future and we worry about our retirement and we worry about our bank account. And all of these things happen because we begin to believe that those are our things and it's our responsibility to, to, to hold on to them and to keep them. The reality is that we don't own any of that stuff. God owns it all and he's given it to us and he's called us to be managers of it. He's given me a lot of things. He's given me far more than I ever deserve. I can tell you that. But my job is to manage those things and to steward them for his glory in the world around me. And yes, to enjoy them. God gives us things to enjoy. There's nothing sinful about enjoying the gifts that God gives us. There's nothing sinful about having a, a car that you enjoy driving. There's nothing sinful about having a, a comfortable home to live in. There's nothing sinful about having clothes that, that, that you can wear that, that make you feel good. There's nothing sinful about any of that. What becomes sinful is when we begin to believe that those are ours and that we're entitled to those things and that we can never lose them. That we own them. 
No, God's given them to us to enjoy. And they're his. And that means he can remove them. He has the right to do that. But when I'm a manager, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a manager? A manager is a person who arranges their finances to reflect the fact that everything belongs to God, everything comes from him, and everything is dispersed by him. Owners feel the weight of their stuff all the time. I mean, you understand the difference between manager and owner. If you've worked, right? If you have a business or you've worked in a business, what's the difference between a manager and the owner? Well, the stress level, one, right? The manager just manages stuff, and if something happens, it's like, I'm not the owner, right? That's his problem, right? The owner's like, it is my problem because it's my stuff. That, that's, that's the way it is. Like, it's the Lord's. I'm the manager. If some of it's gone, it's the manager's stuff. It's the owner's stuff. It's not mine. John Wesley famously said this upon hearing that his house had burned down. He said, the Lord's house has burned down. One less responsibility for me. What an attitude, right? He understands this idea that I'm a manager, not an owner. Now the Lord's house has burned down. One less responsibility for me. I'm not there. I'm not there. But he gets the idea that we're, we're, owner, we're not owners, we're, we're managers of it all. And the attitude is this, God, I'm going to worry about being a generous giver. All that I have is yours. It's on loan from you. It's not mine. I don't have to hoard it. I don't have to invest like I'm like, it's mine. It's not mine. It's yours, and you give it to me to enjoy, and therefore I can give it away freely because I know I can give it away freely because it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to you to begin with. If it doesn't come back to me, then that's okay. You're going to backfill and do what you need to do. And God's response is, since you've sought me and you've been a generous giver and you've reflected my character in the world, you can go to bed at night knowing that you'll always have enough and you'll never go without. Finally, this third conviction that we have to settle in our minds, that we have to get in our minds, believe it, settle in our hearts and act on it is this. My security is anchored in God and his faithfulness, not my wealth. We've got to get this in our hearts. We'll never be generous in our giving if we can't settle this. Remember Exodus chapter 16? People of Israel, God's led them out into the desert and so they don't starve. He provides for them miraculous food from heaven. In Exodus 16, 4, the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. People should go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. God says, I'm going to provide every day the food you need for that day. You're never going to starve. I'm going to make sure you have food. I'm going to give it to you. It's going to fall out of the sky. All you have to do is pick it up and eat it. That's pretty cool, isn't it? That solves the whole problem of, where are we going to go eat tonight? Which restaurant do you want to go to? I don't know. Which restaurant? Yeah, I don't know. Just eat the stuff that comes out of the sky. That'd be great. Verse 16, he says this. This is what the Lord commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall take an, an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some, some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over till the morning. In other words, don't be tempted to hoard it and keep extra for tomorrow. But they did not listen to Moses. Shocker. Some left part of it till the morning. Bad idea. 
and it bred worms and stank. You didn't even know the word stank was in your Bible, did you? Bred worms and it stank. And Moses was angry with him. It's a very simple principle that the Lord was trying to teach his people, right? And the principle is this, that your security and your trust is always to be in me and my provision. It's never to be in the provision itself, right? So he's teaching them this by saying, go get enough for today and trust me that tomorrow I'll give you what you need for tomorrow. You're going to be tempted to not put your trust in me, but to put your trust in the provision, and you're going to be tempted. There's a part of you that's going to want to gather up some extra and hide it in the corner just in case I don't come through tomorrow. But if you do that, it's not going to go well. It's going to breed worms, and it's going to stink. That's exactly what happened. And God was just trying to teach him this principle that our security and our trust has got to be in him for our provision, not in the provision itself. And when we get those two things backwards, we we lose generosity. We become sinful hoarders who refuse to give. When we begin to think that I've got to hoard up enough for tomorrow and for next month and for next year and for forever into the future, that that's the driving passion of my life because after all, God may not provide for me tomorrow or next week. I've got to do this for myself. When we do that, we begin to hoard things and we refuse to give. But when we understand that God is the provider, we can, we, can, we can do that. We can say, look, look, God's my, my security and my trust. I don't have to stress. I, if somebody needs something, I can freely give it to them and not worry if I'm going to have enough for tomorrow or next week. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a principle that says you shouldn't have a retirement account. It's not a principle that says you shouldn't have um, a, 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 a fund to, for emergencies or things like that. It's not the point. The point is where's your trust? And how does that reflect in your willingness to be generous with other people? If your security and trust is in the Lord and you run across somebody who needs something and you've got it, you can give it away and not worry that you're not going to have what you need tomorrow. But if your security and trust is in your wealth, you keep trying to be Jeff Bezos. And no matter how many billions you can store up, it'll never be enough never be enough so where's your security and your wealth is it in your things in your provisions or it is in the provider do you believe that conviction is that anchored in your soul that God is the one who provides and that he'll never leave you without when you think about tomorrow and next week and next month and you think about am I going to have what I need or your thoughts about I need to get more for myself or your thoughts along the lines of, you know what, God is faithful and he's never left me without. He'll provide for me next month and next year. Do you see yourself as an owner or do you see yourself as a manager of the stuff that you have? Do you really believe that you can never outgive God? If you can settle those convictions in your heart, It will open up the doors of generosity in your life in a way that will bless other people and that will boomerang back to you in blessings from the Lord. If you can't settle those things in your heart, you're not going to be merciful like the Lord is merciful. You won't be generous in your giving. It'll be hard for you to let loose of your things. And people will go without because you don't want to give. This isn't about some manipulative tactic to give you, get you to give more to our church. That's not the point. The issue is, are you a person of generosity? Those are the values of the kingdom of God. Generosity and giving joy in those things. 
And let me just say this. I, as one of the most joyful things I, I get to do as a pastor is I get the behind-the-scenes the view of your generosity in many ways that the rest of the congregation often doesn't get to see. I get to see time and time again where many of you find out about a need and you generously and graciously meet that need and find joy in doing it. This church is a generous, generous church. You are generous, generous people. I'm saying that as your pastor. You, you model this, this, this thing in many, many ways. And I get to see it. And I'm blessed by it every time I see it. Because I know that it reflects the character of God. And I know that God is going to bless that generosity in your lives. And so I challenge you this morning to keep up that generous spirit. Keep up that generous heart. Settle those convictions in your mind. Find joy in being a giver that's generous. And see if you can outgive God. Just see if you can do it. And watch and find out that you can't. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're good to us. You are so, so generous. Your generosity is unbelievable. We don't deserve it. We have not earned it in any way, shape, or form. And yet you give and you give and you give. When I look at my own life and the things that you've given me, it's amazing. It is amazing and astounding. A heart filled with gratitude. And yet, Lord, I know in my own life, I feel that tug of the values of the world around me. A tug of starting to see myself as an owner of the things I have and stressing and worrying about them. Being tempted to hoard them up and not give. There are times that I, I'm tempted to, to wonder if you'll come through for me next month or next year or when I retire. Lord, and there are times, there are times when I wonder if, if, uh, if your generosity will sustain. But you've proven it over and over again, your faithfulness. So, Lord, help me to, to push back against the values of the world that I've soaked up in my life and begin to be a generous giver. You've called me to, that I can model mercy like you've called me to. Give and not worry about getting back. Give to people who don't even deserve it. Give generously. Lord, help me with that by your Spirit. May others come to know you because of my generosity that they might see you as the generous God that you are and be drawn to you may that be true of all of us it only happens by your work in us and we pray these things in Jesus name amen